The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Anybody have a place to sit? We've been looking at uh, this responsibility, like it or not, this responsibility we have to understand the mind and then to respond skillfully to what we come to understand about the mind. It's easy to understand how many things we can ruin by engaging or doing, working with it, but not understanding it. You know, we project something as if it's true, but then we don't get the results we expect. And then we blame the thing. This happens in relationships. It happens even in terms of our own mind. We feel betrayed by our own mind as well as others. The life itself we feel betrayed by. In a way, we can, and I think it's useful to think about our <clears throat> human predicament. The only problem as humans, it isn't that we get old and die. It isn't that there isn't enough for everybody. I mean, these may be problems, but the fundamental problem of human beings is we don't understand this experience. So we don't understand, more specifically, the nature of the mind. We misinterpret our experience and live accordingly to our misinterpretation and have all kinds of problems. So over the last couple of weeks I've been uh, just talking about there's a range of how we respond to this predicament of misperceiving, misunderstanding, and acting based on that misunderstanding or that misperception. One is when the mind is balanced, to have a moment of being radically open and present. And when the mind is open, in order to be fully awake or open or present or mindful, all of the neurotic filters have to fall away in that moment. We can't be present with the body, present with thought, present with another human being, and manipulating or reacting in some way. It's like one or the other. So one of the reasons that there's such emphasis on training the mind to be present with something simple like breathing in, I mean, as simple as that is, it's still quite difficult. Being present with walking, being present with the sound of a bird. So we train with these simple objects to be radically present with the body, with the breath, with the bird sound, with seeing. Learning how to be open, without, and, and in that opening, the mind free of obscurations, free of distraction, free of reactivity. So we start to learn this basic skill in a simple way. That's why we go to simple places, like Common Ground Meditation Center, or on retreat, or somewhere in the woods, away from things that trigger a lot of the mind's reactivity. 
to realize this possibility of just being open and letting things be. A lot of the times, the mind just isn't balanced. We don't have enough confidence or enough balance or enough stability in the mind to just open in that radical way. So we do our best to open, and then a lot of what we do in the next moment is we're supporting balance by seeing what's causing the imbalance and doing whatever we can, whatever that particular view or attitude or state of mind is that's causing the imbalance to abandon it. So like if I'm really greedy and really want my mind to be balanced, but it's not balancing and I'm not seeing clearly and I'm reacting and I feel the tension in my body and mind, well, I might notice that the strong desire to have insight, to be balanced, to be mindful and to be free is a problem. And I see, oh, it's the greed, the strong craving to be free that's in the way of being free. And then we, and then it's just a matter of learning to trial and error how not to feed that craving, that strong desire, how to let it fall away, fall out of the mind in a sense. So now I'm mindful without the strong desire. But that mindfulness is much more stable, much more balanced, much more capable of experiencing real freedom, being in the moment without suffering, without reacting, without struggling with experience, no matter what the experience is. This realm of abandoning what's unwholesome, preventing unwholesome qualities of mind from arising, like fear, any self-centered emotional pattern, fear, greed, aversion, not wanting to be present, not wanting to see clearly, you know, the different qualities of delusion. These self-centered, neurotic patterns, emotional, mental patterns, are painful. They themselves are stressful. Just being in a state of mind of aversion is stressful. And then it sets in motion the conditions that lead to more stress for ourselves and others. So we're in this world of abandoning and preventing those unwholesome states and cultivating and maintaining wholesome states, like the state of calm, the state of gentleness, the state of patience, the state of clarity. You know, these qualities of mind, we can find ways to develop and maintain in the mind. So this is at one end of the spectrum. At the other, at the first end that I talked about, it's just a matter of that confident opening to the present moment. That radical, in a way, the heart or mind is releasing into the state of simplicity. And then all the way along that spectrum to where the mind is with a strong intention, like here you might imagine what a parent might do when their child is in real danger, you know. A wolf pack has surrounded their kid, you know, and there the mother is or the father is, you know, 30 feet away. And that parent, you know, they're going to they're gonna be looking for a big stick or something to save their son or daughter. And it's the same thing. Sometimes when the mind is out of balance, 
were susceptible to being caught in really negative states of mind, dangerous states of mind that cause real pain for ourselves and pain for those around us. And so the action here isn't this sort of radical trust in the present moment. It's like, what can I do to get rid of these dangerous mind states that I'm either already involved in, already caught up in, or soon to be caught up in? They're about to arrive. What can I do to abandon them, to prevent them? What can I do to bring in clarity, bring in patience? Bring in forgiveness. Bring in letting go, renunciation, or contentment. So it's a more, in a sense, it's a more vigorous practice. We're struggling for our mental health, you could say. Here, when the mind, when there, in a sense, is already, the mind is already relatively balanced and stable, we're not struggling for mental health. And there's, uh, in that balance, we can do something more uh, immediately freeing. In a sense, we're rediscovering the natural freedom of the mind. So we want to be able to practice all the way along that spectrum, not just assuming that spiritual practice is this simple act of opening. Because sometimes when we open and we see we're surrounded by walls, or we see that the mind is completely caught up in negative, hurtful, harmful states, then we want to be the surgeon who's removing these harmful states. We want to be the person who's very intently bringing in wholesome states in a way that actually works. I mean, you can want wholesome states to come in in ways that are counterproductive, or you can try to get rid of unwholesome states in a way that's completely counterproductive. So it's all about being uh, acting in ways that are skillful, that work. This is a couple paragraphs from Jack Hornfield's book in this chapter we've been looking at. He says, unhealthy thoughts can chain us to the past. They arise as the result of past action or past karma that we cannot change, right? Because when thoughts arise, they're arising because what's been set in motion in the past, the way the mind's been conditioned. And he goes on, he says, we can, however, change our destructive thoughts in the present. Through mindfulness training, we can recognize them as bad habits learned long ago. Then we can take the critical next step. We can discover how these obsessive thoughts cover over grief, insecurity, and loneliness. This underlying suffering needs to be held with compassion as we gradually learn to tolerate these underlying energies, we can reduce their pull. So, so much of our reactive patterns is a way of avoiding feeling the pain we feel. We react in these patterns, you know, being defensive, being greedy, taking more than we need, grasping what we have, hating, feeling justified in our hate, self-righteousness. We use these to avoid feeling what we're actually feeling in that moment. And the thing is, we don't actually get rid of the underlying, maybe call it existential pain. What we do is just distract ourselves with a superficial pain to avoid being conscious of a more subtle pain. But we still are suffering human beings. 
caught in suffering, running from suffering and suffering because of it. He goes on, he says, but even knowing their source and feeling them with compassion is not enough to transform the most difficult patterns. We have to replace them. That's, he's talking about this work over here where we're actively doing, basically we're actively doing whatever works to heal the mind, to make the mind, heart, healthy and balanced. Sometimes people come to me that have been uh, prescribed, you know, different meds for psychological problems that they might be having, anxiety or depression or whatever it might be. And they're concerned because there's this assumption that people make sometimes, I'm not sure why, because Buddhism is such a pragmatic set of teachings. But they think that somehow medication is inherently bad because I'm doing something to affect the way things are. And they make this assumption, people sometimes make this assumption that the practice is about not trying to make things different than what they are. <coughs> but that's not the practice because, you know, the whole point is to try to get somewhere with practice. I know that seems counter what I often say, you know, just let things be. But that instruction to let things be leads to a transformation. The reason we let things be is it brings the mind from a place of struggling to a realization of non-struggling. It is a change. And so we want to be in this place where the mind is out of balance and there's, we're getting caught or about to be caught in states of mind that we understand lead to our own affliction and the affliction of others. We want to do whatever works. And if we try something and it doesn't work, then we learn that. Oh, that didn't work. That made the mind more destructive. So let me try something else. Don't forget that, honey. Remember that. That doesn't work. So even if it's just through trial and error, he says, Jack Kornfeld says, this is, uh, this is the movement of creating healthier karma. Such, thoughts, such thought replacement can be challenging, for we are loyal to our stories. They become our identity. There's an uneasy moment when, we, when the destructive stories we have been telling ourselves collapse. We can feel worried, doubtful, spacey, or frightened of the unknown. Sometimes we have to pry ourselves loose from their power and bad advice. But underneath destructive thoughts is a part of us that knows such thoughts are not true, not valid, not alive. And with the release of these old stories, a new a whole new perspective dawns. Fear, um, fear can be transformed into presence and excitement. Confusion opens up into interest. Uncertainty can become a gateway to our surprise. And unworthiness can lead us to dignity. So sometimes, depending on the particular moment, the particular state of mind, Sometimes the way wisdom arises for us is in that more simple, radical presence and just letting things be. But sometimes wisdom arises in a different way. And the Buddha has such a beautiful discourse about this. He uses a simile that I find quite powerful to describe these two ends of the spectrum. At this end, when the mind is balanced, 
and dominated by wholesome qualities. He uses the example of a cow herder. After the, all the crops have been harvested, let's say your job is to take care of a herd of cows, and you're in a farming area where people are growing crops. Well, after the harvest, you don't have to worry about where the cows are walking because they're not going to trample the crops. They've all been harvested. And actually, the farmers don't mind the cows walking through the, uh, through the cropland because they fertilize it by pooping. So there you're happy. And you can just sit under a shade tree and just know that the cows are there and let's let them wander about. So that's one thing the Buddha, that's one half of the simile. And the other half, when the mind is dominated by unhealthy states, negative states of mind, greed, aversion, delusion, aggressiveness, then you have to be like a cow herder right before the crops are going to be harvested. And you just have these narrow little pathways to walk. And you're constantly tapping with your stick and poking with your stick to keep the cattle on the narrow pathway. And one false move, if you space out, and the cows start moving into the crop, you know, I don't know about today, but in the, in the old days, you'd be, you know, the, according to the way the Buddha describes it, you'd be beaten or imprisoned or fined for your cows destroying the crops of, you know, that you don't own. And so you'd be very different. You'd be very vigilant, hyper-vigilant. And that's exactly that Buddha's using this as an image for our mind. We, when we're surrounded, when the mind is full of negative states, we want to be really vigilant, awake, seeing what helps, what doesn't help, what makes it worse. Let me read a little from this discourse. The title of this particular talk of the Buddha is called Two Sorts of Thinking. The Blessed One said, Practitioners, before my awakening, when I was still just an unawakened bodhisattva, someone on the way to awakening, that's what that means, the thought occurred to me, why don't I keep dividing my thinking into two sorts? So I made thinking imbued with sensual craving, thinking imbued with ill will, and thinking imbued with harmfulness, one sort, so that's one category, and then the opposite, thinking imbued with renunciation instead of sense desire, thinking imbued with goodwill instead of ill will, and thinking imbued with harmlessness, gentleness, kindness. I put that in the other category, right? So that's the first thing. It's like an insight. It's an actual insight when we realize, oh, there are two qualities of thinking. Thinking that causes problems. And he goes on and he says this. And I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking imbued with sensual desire arose in me. Right? So there he is. He's ardent, heedful, resolute. And he noticed that sensual desire arises in his mind, or ill will, or harmfulness arises in his mind, being a little aggressive, a little tight. I discern that thinking imbued with sensual desire has arisen in me, and that it leads to my own affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to the affliction of both. So that's another insight. And in Buddhism, often the preliminary insights are all about cause and effect. You see that there's ill will in the mind, and you see that right now it's stressful. And maybe you've noticed it's stressing those people around me out too. And he goes on, it's not only stressful, it's possibly stressing other people out, 
He also says, um, it obstructs discernment, which is just another word for wisdom. It obstructs, it gets in the way of clarity when there's ill will in the mind or sense desire in the mind or harmfulness in the mind. It promotes vexation or agitation. It does not lead to unbinding the release of the heart, right? It binds up the heart, bounds up the heart, doesn't release the heart. And this is an insight we can have. So tomorrow, tonight, when we notice there's ill will, we notice the mind is a little aggressive as we're driving home, the way we brake, the way we accelerate, and we just notice, oh, this greediness, this aversion, it's causing this mind right now affliction. It's not supporting clarity. It's not supporting calm. It's not supporting the release of the mind. We can see that as an insight. And then, even in a more subtle way, he goes on and says, as I notice that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. Now, this is really important. He didn't say, you know, uh, when, uh, when he made that cause and effect connection, you know, that sense desire is uh, afflicting, I'm going to get rid of it, I'm going to hate it, or I'm going to destroy it. It's actually just noticing the cause and effect that sense desire, ill will, harmfulness leads to affliction, it subsides. Just knowing that it causes affliction is the cause for its subsiding. So here's, let's just generalize this point. Human beings are, if we're actually being unskillful in a moment of our, our life, by this definition at least, if this is what, if what the Buddha says is true, it only happens because we don't realize that we're being unskillful. If we actually realize we're being unskillful in the sense our unskillful attitude, is causing stress for ourselves and others, we wouldn't be unskillful. Seeing that our actions, our thoughts, are destructive is the cause for the abandonment of those destructive patterns. We don't have to hate them. We don't even need to remove them. The removal comes from clearly seeing that they're destructive, that they're counterproductive. And this is really important to understand about mindfulness. This is why mindfulness is truly the path of non-harming. Even though there's a lot of work we have to do, we're literally transforming the mind from ill will and greed and aggression, which are very common emotional patterns, not just in human beings. But the way we transform the form the mind from these patterns is seeing that they don't work in this situation right at hand. As I notice that it leads to my own affliction, it subsided. As I notice that it leads to the affliction of others, it subsided. The affliction of both, it subsided. When I notice that it obstructs discernment, it subsided. When I notice it promotes vexation, it subsided. When I notice it does not lead to the unbinding of the mind, it subsided. Whenever thinking imbued with sense desire, ill will, harmfulness aris, ar, uh, arisen, had arisen, I simply abandoned it, destroyed it, dispelled it, wiped it out of existence. But the way he did it, and this is the important point, is by making the connection. This mind state, this attitude, 
this way of relating to my experience is harmful, is causing stress for me and for others, getting in the way of clarity, agitating, causing the mind, heart, body to get bound up. Seeing it is a cause for its release. A little later he says, in this talk he gave, whenever a practitioner keeps pursuing with his or her thinking, pondering, that becomes the inclination of one's awareness. If a practitioner keeps pursuing thinking imbued with sense, desire, ill will, or harmfulness, abandoning thinking imbued with renunciation and goodwill and harmlessness, one's mind is bent by that thinking imbued with those unskillful qualities. And then he goes on, he gives that simile about poking and tapping and keeping the cows in line, right? And he says after that simile, and as I remain thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, thinking, imbued with renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness, arose in me. I discerned that thinking imbued with these wholesome qualities, that they lead to neither my own affliction, nor the affliction of others, nor the affliction of both. It fosters discernment, promotes the lack of vexation, leads to unbinding. If I were to think and ponder in line with that, even for a night, even for a day, even for a day and night, I do not envision any danger that would come from it. Right? So this is interesting, that thinking thoughts, having intentions of goodwill, renunciation, harmlessness, you can think all the time, and this kind of thinking is not going to cause harm. But, he goes on, um, except that thinking and pondering a long time would tire the body. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed. And a, mind is, uh, and a disturbed mind is far from concentration, far from balance. So I steadied my mind right within, settled, unified, and concentrated it. Why is that? So my mind would not be disturbed. So he's saying that thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of renunciation or letting go, thoughts of harmlessness, they're good, but even a good thing, too much of a good thing, tires the mind. In which case, you even want to let go of those good thoughts to really bring about a more refined balance. So, often the way we talk about it in Buddhism is, you know, we abandon the negative thoughts of, you know, self-centered thoughts of greed, aversion, denial, and we develop wholesome thoughts of goodwill and letting go, contentment, renunciation, and harmlessness, kindness, and compassion. But then we can even, and then that, that sort of healing, to be in the midst of that kind of thinking, it's pretty healing. We feel good. We feel protected by those wholesome thoughts. But it's even a more refined state of mind to even let those fall away you know, by just being present with sound or the body sensations or the breath, or just the own silence of the mind, using that as an object of attention, just feeling that sense of space or silence or stillness in the heart and mind, and just resting there. And then the Buddha goes on and talks about how this leads, this stillness and stability Silence of mind leads to even deeper insights, deeper experience of freedom. Now, next week I'll 
uh, we'll do one more week on this subject, and I'll share another discourse to the Buddha where he really talks about the spectrum. So in this particular discourse where the Buddha is talking about the relaxation of thought, or the another translation for this talk is the removal of distracting thought, he's really <clears throat> giving us strategies for when mindfulness isn't balanced enough to free the mind from its attachment to thought and emotion. Then he gives five strategies. I think last week or maybe two weeks ago we talked about the first, which was substitution, where you take the peg and push out the old peg. So you take loving kindness and you reflect on loving kindness in a way that it removes aversion or fear from the mind. But if that doesn't work, there are more intense all the way to the last one being crushing mind with mind. So we'll talk about this next week, but we have some time tonight. I wanted to put aside more time for people to share your own experiences of working with your mind. So it would be nice to hear from people about your own discovery of mind states that are unskillful. So in the category of harmful, in the category of sense desire, craving, in the category of, what are, what's the other one, ill will. So how you've noticed thoughts in this area and how you've directly seen cause and effect them causing harm in your mind and others, disturbing the mind, removing wisdom from the mind. And then examples of people, people seeing wholesome states in the mind and directly seeing how these wholesome states are healing lead to clarity and wisdom and skill. And then just sharing how you work with abandoning and preventing unwholesome states from dominating the mind and maintaining, cultivating and maintaining wholesome states. It would be great to hear how this has worked practically in your life. And of course, any questions you have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? What have you learned? Yeah, April, right? My name is April. Um, and I'm going to struggle through this a little bit, so bear with me. Um, I have recently come to a 12-step program, and I believe it actually is through meditation that I came to it, so it's a crack in my brain. I heard, and in this past year, I've been coming here for about a year on and off. And today I experienced a a moment with my colleagues at lunch today, and I, I have a food addiction, um, where my obsession for um, food was actually covering up um, some resentment with my colleagues in the moment of just having a discussion about work. But I didn't realize it in that moment. I was, I had to, um, I didn't realize it until later in the afternoon when one of my colleagues said, you know, is everything okay? Um, people really quiet at lunch today. And at the time, I just answered, I have a lot of things on my mind. You know, but, you know, don't take it personally. And in reflecting back in that moment, it just came up in my meditation tonight was I kept thinking about that moment when she asked me what was wrong and instead of being really honest and actually fresh with her about what was happening in my mind during lunch, 
but now I recognize the resentment that I had about what was being discussed. Um, it didn't allow for any healing or anything to move forward in a beneficial way. And, um, you know, I've been finding actually this more often now that I'm trying to work through um, 12 steps in the very beginning stages of recognizing my um, constant obsession with an addictive nature really covering other problems. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't really have any answers. I mean, I, 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 I don't. But I do know that um, I'm grateful for the meditation of being able to even recognize that yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. So do you, I mean, one, one question just to ask your mind, am I, am I willing to feel, am I willing to open to what these patterns are covering up? And to really see that as a, uh, an option, like I don't have to run from this. We fear pain because we make this very simplistic assumption that pain is dangerous. The pain that we run from. Some of you might have heard this quote. It's a famous quote in uh, sort of inside meditation circles. Jack Hornfield, the person who wrote the book we're reading, I don't think it's this quote or this story is in this particular book, but he tells the story of when he first arrived at Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand, his most important teacher, when he was a young man. And Ajahn Chah said something to him like, uh, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. And Jack Cornfield said, what do you mean, not afraid of suffering? I mean, that seemed like a strange thing for the teacher to say to someone who's just arriving at the monastery, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And then Ajahn Chah went on to say, well, there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering we run from that follows us everywhere, right? That's suffering added on to suffering. And there's the suffering we stop and turn toward, we open to, and realize the freedom that's possible. And so that's, that really sounds like what you're, you've been talking about, April, that you're waking up to this, this choice. Endless running or turning toward. And discovering that the heart isn't destroyed by opening to what it doesn't want to open to. And just think about how many things we've had to open to. I mean, how many experiences of loss, this, the cumulative, we added up all the loss that people in this room has exper have experienced. And have we actually been harmed by opening to loss? I mean, initially, the, if it's too much, too fast, it can feel overwhelming, of course. But if we're there over turning back to it over and over, it's amazing what the heart can open to. I think somebody in the back had a comment or... Yeah, with Chuck? Yeah. Um, very similar to what Maybe a little louder, Chuck. Very similar to what Abel said happened to me last week or two. Um, I had had experiences uh, where I...
Thanks for sharing that. Um, if I can say one more thing. Um, I, 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 I
I bet he's not saying that. I mean, if you know anything about Buddhist politics, Arjun Brahm is in the middle of it, <laughs> big time, um, which I won't go into. But, but the, the point is, you know, I mean, not only is he head of a community, a spiritual community, which is not easy to do, but there's a kind of a bigger controversy that he's in the middle of around uh, Bhikkhuni ordination, the ordination, whole ordination of uh, female monks. Um, but anyway. Aside from that, that assumption, you know, that he's not in the middle of difficult stuff. What we really want, we want that, you know, the title of the book is meant probably to be provocative, the disappearing of self. We want that experience of real silence, the full release silence space of the mind. Because then when we come back into the world of dynamics and good and bad and, and societies that are unjust, uh, and wanting to make things better, then it informs how the mind is in that situation. It's like now we really see in vivid colors skill and skillful and unskillful qualities of mind. And it just makes us so much more creative and responsive as we interact and do the best we can in the situations we find ourselves. So we have every incentive. If we, if we want to be an activist and want to bring about positive change in the world. We have every incentive to put more effort in the silence, in the retreating of mind, so that when we do inevitably get pulled back into the world, because we see something or hear something or something happens to us, then our response is going to be coming from a more subtle, more refined place. Because you know how it is. I mean, that terrible story of the young man in um, Florida, was he 16? I forget how old he was. 16, so he's quite young. I mean, that's just a perfect example how, uh, how terrible things happen when people are on the surface, you know, and just dealing with sort of conditioned responses, responses and not being reflective at all. You know, really terrible things happen. And, uh, you know, he, I mean, I'm not going to blame him for <laughs> him getting murdered, but you can imagine like his condition response. There's a strange guy following me in a car. You know, I'm going to do this, or I don't know what he did, but, you know, and then the other person interprets it the same way. I mean, this is just the same thing that's going on in the Middle East. It goes on in relationships between partners where somebody does something and then it's interpreted this way and it just builds. Now, it would be so useful to have some people with big megaphones or in positions of leadership to be coming out of that place of silence and just to see how much fear is driving the conversation in this country, how much greed is driving the conversation in this country, and to be able to reflect it back to all of us so we can see, oh my God, this is not working. This is just making it worse. I mean, that's the kind of leadership we need. But the thing is, all of our leaders, or most of our leaders, most of the time, are coming from a pretty superficial place. Even if we like what they're saying, it isn't that useful because it's not coming from a deep place. That's what really stops us in our track, when somebody can mirror back so clearly that where we're at is unproductive. I mean, there are a few people who tried to do that after 9-11, to reflect back 
how fear is not the appropriate response to what just happened. But, you know, it was, it was just not, for whatever reason, not enough. They didn't have a, a big enough megaphone or presence in the conversation to help people realize, oh, yeah, why am I trusting this fear, this hatred? How is that going to help? It's clearly not helping me, you know, being locked in this fear. Yeah. Listen loud, Leslie. Um, so this, these two sides, the wolves that You don't have to bat that cow. Just tapping and poking is enough to let <laughs> that you didn't need to figure it out. And see, here's the thing. It's not even that you're always going to be skillful like it sounded like both of those examples you gave where you were resolute in one moment about some unwholesome state, some like fear, and the mind, the wisdom in the mind, right, resolutely said, no, we're not going there. It's not helpful. And another time, just sort of opening and not resisting, not trying to, so the abandonment came by opening as opposed to the abandonment coming by seeing and uh, restraining the mind one way or another, either redirecting it or just saying no to it. Now, the, your first question was, well, how do you know? But see, the thing is, we don't do wisdom. It seems like I'm the one practicing in order to become wise. But wisdom, like ignorance, is an organic thing. There is nobody who's wise. There are patterns. This mind is made up of patterns. There are patterns that are more or less skillful. So what we're doing is we're creating the context for patterns to arise. And then mindfulness is tracking the relative skill or unskillfulness of the different patterns that arise. When we see an unskillful pattern arise and see the unwholesome results that come from it, that weakens that pattern in the mind. It undermines that pattern. When we see a wholesome pattern arise and see the 
positive results that flow from that wholesome pattern. That strengthens it. It becomes a stronger predisposition in the mind. The mind is more likely to relate with that pattern in the future and less likely to relate with a pattern that we saw clearly doesn't work or leads to destructive results. So this is, we have to transform this notion that we have to be wise. I have to decide how to skillfully respond. We're taking the stance of awareness and, and then the response that actually arises and we bring out, bring into action, we just observe what's happening and what it leads to. It's a little scary, but that's just the way that it is. And to sort of hold on to the notion that I'm doing it all actually gets in the way of observing what's working and what's not working. And that's really what we put the emphasis on, is learning what's working and what's not working. What mind states support happiness and skill in life? What mind states support lack of skill? You know, people had rioted after hearing the news of this murder. Um, you know, it may be nothing anybody could do. You know, it's like an organic thing when hate breeds hate and it's like explosive, like a wildfire, and all of a sudden neighborhoods are burnt and windows are broken. But whoever, as a community or as individuals, whoever is just reflecting, oh, this is what happened. You know, this news was heard. This feeling arose in our minds and hearts. We didn't like that feeling, and the way we practice not feeling the feeling is we got angry and made some assumptions and went out and did some things, and now it's like this. And to kind of really track that whole thing and to see, oh yeah, that did not work. There's still the loss of this innocent life, and there's all this other mess now that we have to take care of. Sure. Uh, just, it has to be short. I got a minute left. Yeah, I'm a little confused about like way in that thing you're reading, Buddhism, the way the sense desire was the same category. Yeah, well. That's a really good question. I mean, the, the best way, I mean, it has to be a short answer, but the best way to think about it is, and language is always, I was a little sloppy, but that's how it was translated. It probably would have been best to talk about craving sense experience or being identified with sense desire. Because you're right, desire is just, I, I like to equate desire with life energy. Like being alive, there is desire. So in a neutral sense, the desire to move, the desire to eat, the desire to have sex, all of these things are just natural, unavoidable movements of life energy. But when the mind gets identified with these natural movements of desire, then there's a certain neurotic toxicity to desire. Because there's a sense of somebody who needs it as opposed to just the natural movement of nature. Just like a plant, you know, naturally, the leaves naturally turn to the sun as best they can, given the different obstacles. Well, you know, same thing, you know, if there's ice cream 
and I'm not full, and I'm not feeling like I've had too much sugar, I'll naturally gravitate. But when I go for the ice cream, even though I am full, and even though I've had a lot of sweets today, and even though I am going to bed in a little bit, well then that's because I'm identified with it. You know, I'm identified with the pleasant idea of that ice cream in my mouth. And that's, so there is a, an important difference between just desire, and there's chanda is the word for neutral desire, and then panha, thirst, grasping. These are different words that apply an identification with the desire. Yeah, that, that's actually it's a beautiful book, but it's not a, a story of the the Buddha. It's kind of a Siddhartha was the Buddha in that story. Just if you didn't read this book, so many of us got interested in Buddhism from reading this book. <laughs> written by Herman Hesse back probably in the early 60s. I'm not sure when, maybe even late 50s. But is it? But anyway, Siddhartha isn't the Buddha. Uh, he's a Buddha-like character, but the Buddha is another character in that book. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we need to end here. It's a little less than I... Uh, yeah, The Wise Heart by Jack Hornfield. Oh, the Sutta? Yeah, the middle length discourse, and it's is it 19? Yeah, uh, Middle Length Discourse 19. If you write in Google, Middle Length Discourse 19, Buddha, I think you'll probably get this. Yeah, the Middle Length Collection. Middle Length. 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 L-E-N. Yeah. There's the Long Discourses and the Middle Length Discourses and the Connected Discourses. They're different collection of talks. So let's just take a... No, we have to end now, after tonight. So we'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just let the mind go back to silence for a few seconds. Noticing the qualities in the mind. to live in a way that supports real peace and freedom in our hearts.